Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Tonight we come to the Doctrine of Salvation, Part 1. We'll give a couple of studies to it, both this Wednesday and next Wednesday. And there are many wonderful texts in the Bible that deal with the Doctrine of Salvation, but to read one in particular that I think lays such a good foundation would be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me there to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 1 and through verse 10. Uh, This is a wonderful text because it gives a very accurate and sobering picture of our past. Uh, It then addresses, interestingly, our present slash future, and then it shares with us how God got us there and what God is going to do in us until the day that we are in his presence. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you, and most English translations do have the phrase, He made alive in verse 1. But if you look at it, you'll notice that at least in my New King James Version, those words are in italics, reminding us that it's not in the original text. You say, then why did they put it there? Because they're going forward into the text and picking it up from verse 5 because they feel like it helps us gain the sense of what he is saying. But actually, I would leave it out because he wants to paint for you, first of all, the, the picture of your sinfulness and the fact that you have no hope apart from Christ. You were dead. You were controlled. You were totally alienated from God, as he will go on to argue in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. So we'll read it as the original text does. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where the three great enemies of the Christian are brought together. You have the world, you have the evil one, and you have the flesh. All three brought together in verse 1, 2, and 3. But then the greatest but God statement in all the Bible, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, here it is, made us alive together. Now, if you are taking notes, you ought to mark the word together because it will occur in rapid succession three times in verse 5 and verse 6. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together. And he made us sit Together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For what end? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For, just note the magnificent logic of Paul all the way through this. For... We are his poema. 
We get our English word poem from it. My New King James says workmanship. Some commentators would even argue that the word could be translated masterpiece. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are important. Uh, we're not saved apart from good works. We're saved for good works. We are not saved by a faith that is alone, but we are saved by faith alone. No, we are his poema, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what is it that the Bible teaches us about the wonderful doctrine of salvation? Well, here's what the Baptist faith and message says in terms of an introductory statement and then its statement concerning regeneration. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man. That means body, soul, and spirit. And it is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. Now, there are many things we can say even about that opening statement. First of all, they accept, they trust Christ both as Lord and Savior. There's no separation in this statement, nor is there any separation in the Bible of his being Savior and his being Lord. You don't get to take a cafeteria approach to salvation and say, well, I'll take Jesus as my ticket to heaven. But as far as yielding my life to his lordship, well, I'll have to think about that for a while. Well, then you will think about that for a while in a state of lostness. Because you don't bargain with God concerning his saviorhood and his lordship. The Bible keeps them close together in wonderful partnership. But it was also by his own blood that he obtained eternal. The idea of eternal security is here. Eternal redemption for the believer. Thus, in its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And the Baptist faith and message wonderfully gives a paragraph to each of those. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Indeed, there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. And just in case you missed it the first time, so the FNM says it a second time, personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then the first of these four statements is developed tonight, the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, let me note, there is no separation of his saviorhood from his lordship, and there is no separation from repentance and faith. There is a teaching out there among some evangelicals that I think is quite wrong-headed that says repentance is not necessary in order for one to be saved, in order for one to be converted. And yet, as I will argue later in these uh, notes, it was the first words from the mouth of John the Baptist. It was the first words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And it was the first words from the mouth of Peter when he preached his great Pentecostal sermon, repent, repent, repent. And therefore, there is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. 
And repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. And faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior. As I will often say to someone that I'm sharing the gospel with, you in salvation give as much of yourself as you can and you understand to as much of Jesus as you can and understand. Does it require a full or Ph.D. in theology to be saved? I certainly hope not. But one must have a bare minimal understanding of who he is and what he did and then give oneself to him holding nothing back. Do I, do I understand fully everything I'm giving him? No. But you are not knowingly holding something back. To do that is, again, to bargain with God. God does not bargain, and therefore, that kind of faith is not a saving faith. Now, the statement on salvation has a massive number of scriptures, as you see there at the bottom of page 1. And I picked out some of the more key texts that, again, help undergird an overall doctrine of salvation. And we'll note them very, very quickly. First of all, Genesis 3.15, what is called the Proto-Evangelium. I will put enmity, this is God speaking, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, that's Eve, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head. I actually like the translation, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise of the coming of a Messiah. Genesis 15:6, which interestingly is a key text, not in the article. I was quite surprised by this. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Top of the next page, Isaiah 53:6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Matthew 1:21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John 1, 12 through 14, one of the great soteriological texts in the Bible. But as many as received him, the Lord Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. No, salvation, as Jonah says, is of the Lord, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, the Baptist faith, the message also lists as the Scripture to be studied the entirety of John 3, verses 1 through 16. I pick out a selected number of them and then even go on to the end of the chapter, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 18, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting, everlasting life. And he who, does, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
John 5, 24, most assuredly, this is Jesus speaking. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Acts 2, 38, another key text, not in the article. Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 16.31, Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. By the way, the phrase the just shall live by faith doesn't appear in the Bible just two times. Not even three times, but four times. It's in Habakkuk, it's in Romans, it's in Galatians, and also you find it in the book of Hebrews. Then one of my favorite texts, again, in all the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things, all these things he has in mind, are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, placing to their account their trespasses. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. So, how can we put all this together then in some type of theological understanding as it relates to the doctrine of salvation? Well, let's give it a shot. The whole of theology is bound up with our understanding of God, the world, and ourselves. The manner in which we understand salvation then decides and reveals the way in which we will think about God and vice versa. It is then of great importance and entirely biblical that this particular article concerning salvation begins with the emphatic statement that, quote, salvation involves the redemption of the whole man, close quote. In other words, this affirmation guards us against supposing that only our lower Our physical desires are in need of remedy. No, the whole person needs a whole salvation. When we fell in sin, it affected our mind, it affected our body, it affected our will, it affected our emotions, it affected our soul, it affected our spirit. Every aspect of our being 
is tainted with the disease of sin. And therefore, because every aspect of our being is tainted by sin, every aspect of our being needs to be saved from sin as well. Thus, the Scriptures teach that our fallenness extends to the whole of our person, body, soul, and spirit need redemption. The Son of God then, in His incarnation, death, and resurrection, looked, took upon Himself all that we are, note, all that we are in order to redeem us. In fact, I could have said it this way, He took upon Himself all that we are in order to redeem all that we are. He was like us in every respect, apart from sin. There was a great church father by the name of Gregory of Nazianzen, and Gregory of Nazianzen made this statement, what he has not assumed, he cannot save. And he was arguing against those that in some ways tried to say that Christ was only partially human, maybe mostly human, but not completely human. And he said, no, 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 no. If he's going to save all of us, he had to become like all of us, and he did apart from sin. In other words, he is just as much human as you and I are apart from the ravaging effects of sin. So this means that salvation includes the resurrection of the body. Brothers and sisters, most of us take that for granted. But the fact of the matter is most religions in the world have at best a, um, a negative view of the body. And some of them see the body as just out and out evil. In fact, in Paul's day, he was having to counter at a number of points classic Platonic philosophy that saw the body as the prison house of the soul, that saw salvation in some way as being liberated from the body. Today, in the Hindu culture, in the Buddhist culture, they have a very negative, very hostile view of the body. It is true. That the uh, religions somewhat related to Christianity, like Judaism and Islam, have a more positive view of the body. But even today, we still have something of a hangover with respect to the body and either going in one of the two extremes. Either one, we deify it and worship it, like Romans 1 says. Or we denigrate it and see it very negatively and say, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And Paul says, and the Bible says, no. No, absolutely no. Salvation will include the resurrection of the body. The same you and the same me, if Jesus tarries his coming, that goes into the ground, will also be the same you and the same me coming back out of the ground. But praise God, it comes back out of the ground, and in the twinkling of an eye, it is instantaneously glorified and made eternally brand new forever. So there, there's continuity between the body that goes in and the body that comes out, but it is a new body as well, but it is a resurrection of the body. Indeed, many theologians will say it this way. The Christian hope is not that of an ethereal disembodied existence, but the eternal life of a resurrected and transformed body. And the Baptist faith, the message 2000, is very good in driving that particular truth home. Top of the next page then. As this article makes quite clear, salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. One must understand then who He is, what he did, know him by name, 
and call upon him as Lord in order to be saved. Now, you read that, so that's very simple, that's very self-evident, that's very clear, is it? I, I've met some believers that almost have a magical view of the way salvation works. And they would even say to someone who's never heard of Jesus, never read a Bible, knows nothing about the gospel, look, brother, look, friend, just call on Jesus and you'll be saved. i got news for you. You can't just call on Jesus and be saved unless you know who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why you need Jesus as your Savior. I was saved as a little boy, as a small boy. Uh, all four of my sons were saved as very small boys, even younger than I. All of us had an awareness of our sinfulness. All of us knew Jesus was God's son, whatever that meant. And we knew it meant something really, really, really important. We all understood that he lived a perfect life. We all understood that he died for our sins, and we all understood that he was raised from the dead, and we all understood that if we would confess our sins and invite him into our life, then we could and would be saved. A child can do this, but there must be a basic understanding of who we are as sinners, who he is as Savior, and what the gospel is. And again, I fear many times we have been deficient uh, in our churches across America in rightly explaining what is required in terms of salvation. Now, that raises a very interesting question, and I think this helps clear it up. The next paragraph, the saints prior to his coming did perceive these same things, but only dimly, only partially. In other words, they exercised faith in God's promises, as they believed in the Christ who was coming. In other words, true or false, Old Testament saints were saved like New Testament saints by faith. True. No one has ever been saved by any other means. True or false, the Old Testament saints understood the nature of the work of Christ as fully and completely as we do. False. They were on the other side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross. Ours is the, listen to me, ours is the much greater advantage and the much greater responsibility. Because we know more. We see more. We understand more. But in every age, salvation has always been by grace through faith in the promise of God. That's why it said back in Genesis 15, 6, and I was disappointed they left it out, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as having a right standing before God. So people are always saved in the promise of God. They were looking forward to the promise. We look back having seen the promise fulfilled in the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, however... The promise of God has come to fulfillment in the resurrection of the crucified Christ. It is the gospel of the Christ who has come, which God has sent forth to the nations, a faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. Romans 10:17. Now, as we noted a moment ago, 
the Scriptures and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 speak with varying perspectives on the salvation which God has wrought for us in Christ. In other words, it's often said, and I like it very well, that salvation is like a multifaceted diamond. And so you turn it and you see different nuances and different phases and aspects of it. The Baptist Faith and Message in particular decides to highlight for them regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So I give you a quick synopsis of those there, and then we'll unwrap them tonight and next week as well. Regeneration. It has to do with God's having made us entirely new creatures in Christ. All that we are in ourselves was put to death with Him. Regeneration means new life, to be born again. It is the divine side of salvation, like conversion is the human side of salvation. Conversion is our turning to Christ. Regeneration is God making us brand new in Christ. Justification. It has to do with the forgiveness of our sins and our acknowledgement of God's just claim against us that we are liars and transgressors apart from Christ. Sometimes you will hear people say that justification means just as if I'd justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's only partially correct. A biblical understanding of justification goes like this. It is an understanding of my standing before God in Christ, that God sees me just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed him perfectly. In other words, there's sometimes the reference of our passive and active obedience that is imputed to us in Christ. Christ passively never disobeyed God. Not one time. And actively, He always obeyed God. Every time. And so it's not just that we get the passive side of justification. I never did anything wrong. We also get the active side of justification. I always did everything right. I lived a perfect life in Christ who lived that life out for me. Again, I think we hear it so often we take it for granted. Just keep in mind tonight that when God looks at you, He sees absolute, complete, and total perfection. You say, but I'm not perfect. I know you're not. You're not perfect. I know that better than anyone. But God doesn't see Danny Aiken's righteousness, praise God. He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to me through the act and the declaration of justification. One of the most precious doctrines in all the Bible. It was indeed the cardinal doctrine of the Reformation. Number three, sanctification. It has to do with God's possessing us as his own and setting us apart from the world which is condemned and defiled. And, as I will say next week, sanctification is our growing in Christ-likeness. It is our becoming more and more like Jesus as he works in and through us for his glory and for our good. And then the thing I'm really looking forward to, and I look forward to it more and more with each passing day, glorification 
This has to do with our future destiny as sons of God at the resurrection from the dead when God's triumph in us shall be complete and where every aspect and every ravaging effect of sin will be gone. I won't have to have neck surgery anymore. I won't have to have colon surgery anymore. Brother Bill won't have to have his head lopped off anymore. Everything will be good. Everything will be good. Dina won't hit him. No, she didn't hit him. That's not what happened. But maybe, I don't know. It's what he said, but I don't, you know, you never can tell. But anyway, all these bad things in this horrible, fallen, sinful, wretched world, it's gone. It's gone. No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. Behold, as Revelation 21 says, I make all things new. I'm looking forward to the day when all things are made new. Page 5 then, let's talk about regeneration. Scripture makes it clear that salvation does not begin with us. As we read a moment ago, we are dead in sin and thus completely, totally, absolutely unable to save ourselves. Instead, God begins the work that allows us to become new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. We call this work then regeneration or the new birth. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. Regeneration equals new birth. New birth equals regeneration. That is, it is the act of God by which he imparts spiritual life to us, resulting in our salvation. We first encounter the phrase born again in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. The phrase is so very descriptive of the work done in us in salvation. And also, of course, as we all know, it's a phrase that's been co-opted by the world. And people all the time say, well, you know, I just, I just feel born again. I, I just feel like I, 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 I've been made brand new. And they co-opt the phrase that's very biblical, but they mean something entirely unbiblical by it. But... As we had no part in imparting life to ourselves at the time of our physical birth. By the way, you just showed up, remember. Likewise, we have no part in imparting spiritual life to ourselves at the time of our new birth. Indeed, John 1.13 underscores this truth by stating that this new birth is not due to the will of man, but to the will of God. Thus, Scripture speaks often of this new birth. In fact, it is described as made effectual through the Word of God, James 1 and 1 Peter 1. Uh, it is done through the work of Christ on the cross, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, 1 Peter 1. And it is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit, John 3, Titus 3. The evidence, though, of the new birth is seen in the changed life of the one who experiences it. And I think we can just say it this way, brothers and sisters, no changed life, no new birth, no changed life, no regeneration. I don't care how many prayers you pray. I don't care how many times you go into the water. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care how much money you give. No change in your life. There is no evidence of a new birth. But how is the new birth appropriated? Jesus said to Nicodemus, well, you must be born again. Well, here we go in Scripture. The response needed is expressed in terms of two key words, repentance and faith. These two actions are often spoken of together under the heading of conversion. That's the human side. 
Regeneration, that's the divine side. And both repentance and faith are needed for salvation. Indeed, the term, there's a misprint there. The term conversion, interestingly, does not appear in the article. And furthermore, as I studied on this, I found out it's relatively rare in Scripture as well. Though, again, there's nothing wrong about talking about our conversion, but the Bible speaks more often of the new birth, the new creation, and regeneration. Well, let's break these words down very quickly. Repentance, top of page 6, involves more than just a remorse or a feeling of guilt over getting caught in sin. Sort of like what Judas experienced when the whole betrayal thing came apart. Rather... It refers to a genuine sorrow for sin, accompanied by a desire and a commitment to leave it behind. Or, as is often stated, it is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. I think that's the best uh, definition myself of what repentance is. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Thus, the awareness of the need to repent is brought about by the Holy Spirit. You would never know that you needed to repent if the Spirit of God did not convict you. Its importance is evidenced by its inclusion as a key element. Now, don't miss this. It is a key element in the preaching of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the early church. And again, you may never run into these people. Uh, there's a, there are quite a number of them in Dallas who will argue that all that is necessary for salvation is that you believe the gospel, period. That's it. No repentance, no turning from sin, no remorse over sin. You just simply believe, and that's it. And yet again, I would say Jesus thought it was important, first thing out of his mouth. John the Baptist thought it was important, first thing out of his mouth. Peter thought it was important, first thing out of his mouth. I'm going to go with Jesus, John, and, and Peter on this one. And I'm going to argue that the moment of conversion, the act of regeneration, is wrought and brought about through repentance, turning from sin, and faith, looking to Christ and Christ alone to save you. Now, what about faith? The noun faith comes from the same root word as the verb, I believe, in the Greek language of the New Testament. And this is just a point of interest. The Gospel of John never uses the word faith one time, interestingly. But the verbal form, I believe, occurs almost a hundred times. I don't know why. They mean the same thing, but one is a noun, one is a verb. But the idea of believing almost a hundred times in the Gospel of John. Now, what about faith? Well, it's more than just acknowledging intellectually that something is true. No, biblical faith requires a personal trust. I like that language in our culture today. It is, it is a personal trust in and commitment to Jesus based on the knowledge of who he is and what he has done in providing forgiveness for sin. Often in the New Testament, the word believe is followed by the word in to express this idea. For example, John 3.16 says, Whosoever believes in Jesus will have everlasting life. And Paul also reminds us that it is uh, because of God's grace that we are saved through faith. He uses the noun. And not by our own works. In other words, just a, another simple reminder, not one of us, no one of us, could ever do enough good deeds to earn God's salvation. Thus, taken together, regeneration, the divine side of our salvation, 
and conversion, the human aspect of our salvation, are both foundational to a biblical teaching of salvation. God then has graciously given us his spiritual life, which we experience as we respond to him in repentance and in faith. Now, a very quick but important theological addition. The Baptist faith and message proclaims the uniqueness of salvation in Christ alone. In fact, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message Revision Committee added a key statement that was not in the 1925 statement, nor was it in the 1963 statement, but it's in the 2000 statement. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Question. Why did they do that? Why did they feel the necessity to make that addition to the 2000 statement? Well, here's why. 21st century American culture emphasizes the virtues of religious pluralism. All roads lead to heaven. Universalism, everybody's ultimately going to be saved. And inclusivism, well, Jesus is the only Savior, but you don't have to know about Jesus. As long as you're doing the best you can with what you've got, God will find a way to get you into heaven. So pluralism, universalism, inclusivism. In fact, I strongly suspect that all of the Baptist colleges in North Carolina, excluding the one that I get the joy of overseeing, the ones that used to be a part of the North Carolina Baptist Convention, I suspect that their religion departments are filled with pluralists, universalists, and inclusivists. In fact, I just about stake my life on it, just knowing their theological orientation, their theological inclinations. And so here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. If that stuff is true, uh, Brother Bill, I don't know why we have this big Lottie Moon thing every year. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Why go if they don't need to be saved? Because they're already saved. Universalism is true. They're already saved. Why waste all that money over there? Why don't we keep it here? If they, uh, in fact, there is even some that say, well, by going, we make them accountable and guilty. Well, then we ought to stay home. Why, why would we do that? If they're safe by believing as best they can what they have, why give them the gospel that then will condemn them? Well, the fact of the matter is they are condemned already. The Bible's clear. They know of God both in conscience and in creation. Conscience and creation are enough to condemn. They're not enough to save. And therefore, apart from a conscious faith relationship with Christ, they will die and they will go to hell. That, again, as, as an aside, is why many of us are, are praying for and working toward a great commission resurgence. It haunts us, that 1.6 to 3.4, depending on how you do the numbers. But bottom line, 3.4 billion, half the world's population has either no gospel witness or next to no gospel witness. And about 1.6 have never heard even for one time the name of Jesus. That is one-fourth of the world's population. And it does bother some of us that 98 cents on every dollar that we give into our offering plates in America through Southern Baptist churches, 98 cents on the dollar never leaves the borders of America. I think that ought to bother all of us. But again, if pluralism is true... If universalism is true, if inclusivism is true, then we ought to keep 100% inside the American borders. In fact, I don't even know why we have church. I mean, I could find other things probably to do with my mind. Not my time. No, religious pluralism teaches that all religions lead to God. 
Religious pluralism is possible only by denying core Christian truths, though, such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement. Religious pluralism ignores the conflicting truth claims of various world religions. I mean, study Buddhism, study Hinduism, study Islam, study Judaism, study New Ageism. They are not like Christianity. In other words, if any one of them is right, then we're wrong. But, brothers and sisters, if we're right, all of them are wrong. I don't say that out of arrogance. I just say that as a matter of thinking rightly and logically about what the alternatives are here. No, religious pluralism ignores the conflicting truth claims of various world religions. Universalism entails the denial of human freedom. After all, it says basically God is going to save all of humanity regardless of a human response. In fact, he'll save you even if you don't want to be saved. And inclusivism teaches that Jesus is the only way of salvation but affirms that some individuals receive salvation without an explicit knowledge of him and his saving work. Inclusivists claim that an individual who responds positively to general revelation, including God's revelation in other world religions, receives salvation. Those of you that study theology, the name Clark Pinnock tragically should come to your mind. In contrast, Paul claims that all people reject God's general revelation, and they are lost apart from the gospel. Furthermore, Jesus proclaimed himself as the exclusive way to God. Using the very language of first century religious pluralism, Jesus claimed to be the one and only way, the one and only truth, and the one and only life, John 14:6. The means then of salvation is personal trust in the saving one. These are the words of Jesus, so just understand if you disagree with that and you fall into the camp of the pluralists, the universalists, or the inclusivists, your argument is not with Danny Aiken. Your argument is with Jesus Christ. That's far, far, far more serious. So, a concluding important theological tension. The statement regarding regeneration in the Baptist faith and message has become a contentious matter in the debate about Calvinism in the SBC. Calvinists and non-Calvinists generally disagree about the order of events associated with salvation. You say, what do you mean? Well, here we go. Some Calvinists affirm and believe that regeneration comes before it precedes repentance and faith. In this understanding, God regenerates, and then the regenerate responds in repentance and faith. That is a classic Calvinist position. That is the position of my very good friend, uh, R. Albert Moeller, Jr., Non-Calvinists teach that repentance and faith precede regeneration. That, by the way, is the view of my very good friend and father in the ministry, Paige Patterson. One I worked with for nine years, one I worked with for eight years and never had any grief. Well, well, that's not exactly true, but never had any real problem working with either one of them. And I won't let you guess on your own where the grief came from. And he does look like a red-headed devil. We move on. The 1925, that is faith, the message, though, stated, it, regeneration, is a work of God's free grace conditioned upon faith in Christ. So what do we do here? Top of page 8 as we close. An interpretive issue then arises in light of the wording of the current Baptist faith and message. What is the antecedent for the pronoun which in the clause to which the sinner responds? In other words, to what is the sinner responding? Well, on one side, a Calvinist may and indeed will understand the BF&M to teach that a sinner responds with repentance and faith to 
the change in heart wrought by the Spirit. Hence, the work of regeneration comes first, then you repent and exercise faith. On the other side, a non-Calvinist may understand the BFNM to teach that a sinner responds to the conviction of sin. So they repent, exercise faith, and then they are born again. You say, which of those do you agree with? Neither. Neither. I hold to the simultaneous nature of repentance, faith, and the new birth. You say, well, that's the wimpy way out. I just think it's the biblical position, but that's for another day. So, Charles Kelly, Chuck Kelly, President of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, Richard Land, President of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and Al, uh, R. Albert Mola, Jr., President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, do model an ironic spirit on this contentious issue of the order of salvation. They wrote a book together on the Baptist faith and message. While Dr. Moeller affirms that regeneration precedes repentance and faith, Kelly and Land believe that repentance and faith precede regeneration. So although they personally interpret the Baptist faith and message statement on regeneration differently, these brothers can join hearts and hands to serve on the Baptist faith and message 2000 committee, and they can serve together to write a recent exposition of the Baptist faith and message published by Lifeway, and I might add they can work together in trying to extend the gospel to the unreached peoples of the world in every nation. So, Baptists can unite on the truth that the Creator God is the source of spiritual life. None of us debate that. Through the instrumentality of the gospel, the Holy Spirit creates spiritual life, a radical change comparable to a new birth or a new creation. I'll just say it to you this way. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. And yet any man, woman, boy, or girl that will repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ, he will save you. How he does it is his business. What I do know is he will do it if that is your response. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful doctrine of salvation. We could spend more than two weeks. We could spend two years studying it and still not exhaust it. But, Lord, perhaps tonight you've given us a good overview of this doctrine, and in particular, you've helped us understand the essential nature of repentance, the essential nature of faith, and the wonderful blessing that is ours through regeneration and new birth, whereby we are made brand new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away, the new has come. Hallelujah. What a salvation we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.